Uh, hi, welcome to More to Come, Publishers Weekly's weekly podcast. Uh, I'm Heidi McDonald. I am here at Mid Georgia Con uh, in Macon, Georgia, and uh, first year con, and a lot of great guests here. And uh, you know, crowds are not enormous, but I do think the people who are here are having a good time. Um, one of the guests is Justin Jordan, who is the writer of many books. Uh, including, probably best known for The Legend of Luther Strode, uh, his own creation for Image Comics, but also working on New Guardians for DC. I see he has an issue of Shadow Man he wrote for Valiant here, and uh, all sorts of other things. So, so Justin, you've become busy, right? I uh, have, yes. After, uh, you know, you're like a, one of those overnight successes that <laughs> were overnight was like 15 years. Yes, <laughs> it, was a, it, was, it was one of those 10 years to an overnight success kind of thing. Right, which, right. It's funny because... It did take 10 years, and it was interesting, like, how once it hit, it really hit. Like, I went from never having published a book with a major publisher to working full-time in comics as busy as I could be in, like, six months, which is insane. Now, what do you attribute this fantastic success to? Good luck. (laughs) Um, Luck actually is a part of it. Um, I don't know. Um, Part of it was that people had read Luther Strode and liked it other writers and suggested me to editors, which was always helpful. Um, it's networking in a fashion. I didn't ask them to do it and that kind of stuff. The other thing is, is I'm relatively easy to get along with, which goes further in freelance work than a lot of people will admit. Right, so. right. That is a kind of a key uh, to a lot of things. Now, But Luther Strode, I guess, was your big breakthrough. Oh, yeah. And uh, like you had an awesome artist on it, Trad Moore, so that couldn't, that couldn't have hurt. But uh, can you, for those who aren't familiar with it, can you talk a little bit about what it's about? Or sure. Luther, the Luther Strode books, there's been two miniseries as yet. We're going to do a third. The first two were Strange Talent of Luther Strode and The Legend of Luther Strode, which they're about generally... Um, a kid who's kind of a nerdy kid. He sends away for a Charles Atlas-style bodybuilding course. Gets it, does it, develops superhuman powers as a result, but also becomes a target for recruitment by a murder cult that goes back to the very origins of mankind. Ah. Um, so it's incredibly violent. Legend of Luther Strode is what happens after the horrifying things that happen to him <laughs> in the first one. Um, the first one's kind of meant to be a tragedy, and uh, with Legend, I was like, well, what do you do if you survive the tragedy? Because classically, the Greeks didn't. It Usually tragedy involved the demise of the protagonist. Um, but that didn't happen in Luther Strode books. So yeah, I got really lucky that I got Trad Moore and uh, Felipe Sobrero on it doing art and colors respectively, and Trad and Felipe are just insane. Yeah. Um, and Trad is currently working on Ghost Rider for Marvel. He's doing the revamp of Ghost Rider with uh, Felipe Smith. Yeah, I which I was, you know, blown away by the fact they were doing this weird-looking book, so it was nice. Yeah, it's good. Marvel, uh, I give Marvel credit, they are really willing to take chances on artists that you would not necessarily, right. or at least I wouldn't have expected to be on a big two book as of like maybe five years ago, but yeah. now they're they're really, you know, taking chances on stuff. I think, but I mean, I think that's kind of part of what you've been, you know, even your own trajectory here. It's like, like even from, from when the first issue of Luther Strode came out, it seems almost like the rules have blown up, you know? It's yeah. like people almost don't even know what, what the thing is anymore, you know? No, I, I think that's absolutely true. That, w- that was another thing that went into the success of Luther Strode, is that we just, it, timing, we just hit mm-hmm. at the right yeah. time for, we were right at the beginning of that big image upswing, and we right. were at the beginning of when digital was really starting to take off, and a bunch of things were changing in comics, and 
shortly after we came out, DC did the new 52, so there was this sense of wildness about the right. industry. Right, that, right. You know, anything could kind of happen. So, mm-hmm. right. And I mean, now you are working for the new 52. You're doing I am. Some books for them. And I mean, how do you find the the difference between working for you know your own stuff with you know your own master, and then obviously at DC, you know, quite rightly they have a little bit more over editorial oversight. So. Uh, it's been good, actually. Um, it's one of those deals with New Guardians. I'm working with Chris Conroy and Matt Idelson, and that has worked really well. And the, it, New Guardians is one of the Green Lantern universe books, of which right. there are four, going to be five, with Helen Bunn starts Sinestro. And it's fortunate for me that the guys who are writing the other books were all friends of mine to begin with, so it, it's, it works together for us all working together well. Um, but the thing about work for hire work is you need to know what you're going into. Like, I am aware that I can't, like, you know, have Kyle just blow off somebody's head or, you know, there's things I flat out can't do that I could do with Luther Strode. And if you go go in knowing, with your eyes open, knowing what you're going in for, um, it's not a bad deal. There are parts of it that are frustrating. There's stuff, there's stupid stuff, like there are occasions in the DC books where a character really should be swearing at what's going on. <laughs> and they're, they're PG books, basically, right. so you can't do that. Right. Um, but for the most part, I don't. I don't not enjoy it, um, and I really like writing New Guardians. I would prefer to be working on my own creator-owned stuff, and I've been lucky enough that everything I've done creator-owned so far has actually made money, which is right, not right. by no means a certainty. That is so. absolutely true. Yeah. So um, now, are you? But there is another Luther Strode book coming out this this year, correct? Yes. Um, um, as soon as Trad is uh, finished up with. Ghost Rider, he's going to start working on the art for that, um, which should be out this fall. And that will actually be the last of the Luther Strode books. Trad and Felipe and I will continue to work together in the future, but I only got like 18-ish issues of story for Luther Strode, and I'm I'm not a fan of extending things just because right. they make money. Now, did you have a beginning, middle, and end in mind when you created the, the story? I mean, was that always your goal? or uh, I can't say always, always. Before the first book was published, I had realized when I was plotting out the first one, that if the book was a success, there was more story that I could tell. And there was a pretty easy three-act structure that would work for it. But I actually had written... I wrote Strange Talent so that if that was the only book we published, people would get a satisfying story out of mm-hmm. it. It wasn't part one. Um, and the same way with Legend of Luther Strode, I didn't. I did that with Strange Talent because I flat out did not believe we were going to make any money on it. Mm-hmm. And that it would just be a completed book from Image, which would get us work doing other stuff. Right. Which happened, but it also happened to be financially successful for us, so we've been able to do the other ones. Um, right. But it, it's the same time, like, yeah, I when I when the story kind of unfolded in my mind, I'm like, yeah, this is where we end. This is the complete story of this guy. And, you know, we'll do about, if we get to do it, we'll do three miniseries, and it was a nice organic structure to it. Now, if you were to talk to other people who are thinking of going to the image uh, model, I mean, is there any advice you would give them for how to, you know, I mean, it is it is a great deal. And, but it is. it's also like you kind of, you know, a lot of it's on your shoulders, too, as the creator. Yeah, one of the things I, I can't say that I, it was one of the things I wasn't prepared for, but it was kind of an unknown, unknown thing, is that how much work it was. Because it wasn't that I thought it wasn't going to be a lot of work. I just had no point of reference to understand how much it is. But when you're working on an Image Central book, you are the editor. Right. You know, um, you're responsible for managing the production schedule, not the literal production of the book, but making sure your artist actually produces the pages and all that kind of stuff, which Trad's good about that. But still, we need to get this done by then. Um, that's a responsibility. You also, Image does have a marketing department, but frankly, they've got 
36, 50, however many books Image puts out now to service, and they've got like a two-person marketing yeah. department. So you're going to have to contact journalists on your own, and you're going to have to email them, and, you're, and you spend a lot of time. There was there was a chunk leading up to Strange Town of Luther Strode where I was spending 20 or 30 hours a week, every week, doing marketing and promotion right. stuff for it. But so. do you think that was worth it? You think yes. That was, yeah. It's one of those things, marketing's tough, though, because it's really hard to say this did that. You can't, there's not a clear linear relationship right. between your efforts and stuff, but I would do it again, and I will do it again for Legacy of Luther Strode. Thank God, now that the book's a success, that's all substantially easier. Before Strange Talent came out, it was very much like shouting into a windstorm right. because there's a lot of people bucking for attention and only a finite amount of bandwidth right. in which to address Right, it. and I mean, I think you, well, I mean, you do go back to, like, the Warren Ellis forums, right? Yeah. And which were the birthplace of a lot of people, you oh, know? Oh, yeah, that um, was ground zero for modern comics yeah, in a lot of ways. it really so. was. You know, Matt Fraction was on there, and, you know, Kelly Sue was on there, and, you know, uh, I think Brian Lee O'Malley was on there from time to time. Karen um, Gillen. Karen, that's right, and Jamie McKelvey. Yep. Um, yeah, it actually is amazing how many people came out of that who... Uh, really have gone on. You know, Becky Cloonan was on there yep. too, and uh, it was really a breeding ground. It's funny because uh, someone who was just came by the my table and was talking about how much they love Transmetropolitan, which is by Warren Ellis and Derek Robertson, which is a book I worked on as an editor back in my editorial days. And and you know, at the time, I was like, man, I wonder if this is going to date. And because, but it seems like Warren is very forward looking, and actually now it seems like it's happening right now. If you yeah, read Transmet, I was going to say Transmet uh, actually has held up really well. Oddly enough, Preacher has not done as well. Yeah, really? Preacher is still a cool book, but there's a lot of Preacher that feels very much of the time when it was produced. Really? Whereas Transmet kind of doesn't. Like it's a vision of the future that's prescient, but like not dated. Which I was. Like, the original RoboCop is kind of that way. Right, Like, all the stuff absolutely. that's going on with the original RoboCop is still going on, only more so. So you watch it now, and, like, in yeah. terms of, like, the social commentary, it doesn't seem dated. Oh, absolutely. We watched it, the original as well, and we're like, wow, this movie is just as, as meaningful as it was. And then we watched the remake, and I literally fell asleep. Uh, wow. The remake, here's the thing, the remake is not a bad movie, but yeah. there's no point for it to but exist. It's, like, it's, it files off everything yeah. that was that made yes. a RoboCop movie worth doing. Yeah. So, I mean, Joel Kinnaman was good, the directing was good, yeah. like, there's nothing wrong with it. But it just was it. so boring. It was yeah. like, like, now they're going to go and they have a fight at the warehouse. And I mean, I fell asleep. I mean, literally fell, dozed off. That's one of those things that uh, the original RoboCop was genuinely shocking. Like, it was because like like when they're when they kill Murphy and they just shoot off his hand and stuff, you didn't see that in action movies. Like yeah. as violent as eighties action movies were, you saw that and you're like, holy crap! Or when the dude yeah. melts, you're just like, okay. But you know, also because the the effects in those movies were practical, they were all on set. And this, to be honest, like nowadays, people be blowing up cities in CGI, and it's like, oh wow, that's a really nice piece of animation. And it does, it isn't like the practical effects. It isn't, the and, and and I agree. I mean, and I don't know if it's a sign of me getting old that I think that, or <laughs> yeah, how much that is. But CGI it's one of those today. when it's a real physical thing. Like I think it makes a difference. Yeah. And one of the things that's happened with digital is especially the blockbuster movies, is they feel this need to top not just themselves, but the other blockbusters. So you do Man of Steel, and whatever else you might say about Man of Steel, it's hard to watch Man of Steel and think, how are they going to top that in the sequel? Because that's what you need to do for a sequel right. is be bigger. How do you get bigger than that? They've, you know, they've kind of got right. to a point where it's like you've set yourself up for 
not being able to top your stuff right. in what you want to be a right. franchise, you know? Right, yeah, I know. And, and, and you know, what they tend to do is just throw more CGI monsters at it. Yeah. Even the Avengers fell prey to that a little bit with the Tari or the whatever they were calling the Skrulls. But, um, but yeah, but uh, anyway, I mean, back to comics <laughs> for a moment. Well, no, it's, we, we do this all the time, but... Um, so actually, you know, talking about the current generation of comics, like you know, people like like uh, Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey, who kind of came, came, came uh, we'll just edit that out, Kate. But um, uh, I mean, do you think? I mean, is there an audience that you feel is different for these comics? How do you feel the audience has evolved? So, uh, that's a good question. I think, I think there is a different audience for that. I think there is a generation of people who are my age, which is mid-30s and younger, who have a different experience with comics than even than I did. Like, especially if... So this is Trad, who's the artist on Luther's Road, is 10 years younger than me. He's 26. Oh, my God. He's yeah. just a kid, huh? He's the youngest person in the history of the world. Right, right, He keeps right. talking about stuff that happened to him in first grade when I was in college. I'm like, I hate you. <laughs> right. But, uh... Yeah, and it, their experience with comics is different. For one thing, they're in an era where comics have been really sophisticated for a long time and that's not to degrade anything before the 80s but in the 80s you've got Dark Knight Returns you got Watchmen you got From Hell you got a lot of those works that took comics to a more kind of sophisticated level and were popular it's not that comics didn't have that sophistication before because Will Eisner was doing some amazing things way earlier than that but they were kind of the big deal stuff that was going on, and they are written into the DNA, both of the creators that are working now, and I think of fans. And I think they've changed the expectations for how comic books are. So I think you've got a generation of comic book readers who expect different things from comic books than people my age and older did. Right. Because right. I was right at the tail end of when you could buy comics everywhere. Right. And comics were produced with the idea of being for everyone and being for kids. Like, they still were in a very fundamental way. Like, there was there was some reasonably mature stuff. I remember my mom was angry when I was, like, eight that I got a Captain America that had the, the Red Skull's secret origin involved the suicide of his father, which she did not think was appropriate right. for an eight-year-old. Wow. And I don't disagree. Um, yeah, that's but a heavy part, story. Yeah, but when I was a kid, you could get comics in grocery stores and convenience stores and gas stations yeah. and all that kind of stuff. I come from an extremely rural place in Pennsylvania, and I can think of half a dozen places I could buy comic books as a kid. Kids there now don't have that. Right. Um, right. So people that grew up in that era when comics were everywhere and were written and drawn and produced to be everywhere have a different experience with comics than people that are younger than that, I right. think. I could be just full of crap. No, I think I think you're right, but I, I mean, I think they also, you know, grew up in a world where you know those works you cited were available, but you know, also the indie stuff too, like Dan yeah. Klaus and Chris Ware. I mean, oh yeah. I think that you know that influence and in having, uh, I don't know. Sometimes you have to get really small before you can get really big, I guess. So, and it's also you know they're kind of growing up in an era where trades were more of a thing right. and were more readily accessible than they were when I was a kid. Right. So I think maybe even that idea of like you got the story that was in this one chunk and that was how you experienced it as opposed to, oh, I am going to buy this book forever every month for the rest of my life. Yeah. You know? And I, I think that that changes uh, expectations and stuff. And honestly, like I think the various companies and comics work with that different models in mind. I think Image is designed around that and Marvel and DC aren't. And that's not a knock on Marvel and DC. Right. It's just not what they do. Right. It's like you don't expect uh, CBS putting out NCIS to be making right. uh, Mad Men. They're right. just 
And uh, I like NCIS. They're just different models of what right, you're trying to do. Right. Hold on one second. Okay. This stops. And now it did stop. Um, <laughs> one more question here. Uh, what the conventions schedule? I mean, I know for artists, it's... Uh, I mean, there's so many now, and uh, a lot of artists go, and, you know, they can do sketches, and they can actually make money at a convention. For writers, it's not as easy. I mean, you might be here, you're signing your work, you know, you bought some of your books to sell. Um, I mean, do you find, do you go to a lot of conventions? Is it, are you invited to more? I mean, are you, you know, what? I, I get invited to a lot. I don't, I, I don't know what constitutes a lot of conventions. I realize this year I will do seven, mm-hmm. which it'll be this one, Awesome Con in D.C., um, C2E2, Wizard World, Atlanta, um, Heroes, Baltimore, New York. Um, so I mostly hit bigger cons, and part of the reason for that is just that. It's the economics of it. Since I don't have anything but books to sell, right. if I want to like break even, I need to have a lot of people come to the table. Right. Whereas right. if I were selling original art, if I sell, you know, if I were trad and sold two pieces of original art, right. I'm, in, I'm in the black right. for a weekend. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, whereas I need to sell a lot of $15 trades to do that kind of thing. Now, it's fortunate that I've... I've achieved a level of success enough that people pay for my tables and stuff, right. so I got that going right. on. But, like, this weekend, I'll, I'll take a hit. Not a huge one, but I mostly came down for the fun of it. So. Right. And right. that's kind of how I look at conventions, to chance to socialize with people that work in the field right. rather than a money-making gig. Yeah. Do you find, though, that they're disruptive to your schedule? I mean, yes. I have... Yeah. See, that's the other thing that it seems like, you know, and now people are being invited as guests, so, um, you know, it's a free trip for them, and, and sometimes it's hard to say no, but then it's like so many of them, like, they pile up. I mean, is that a consideration as well? They are, because last year I overdid it. Um, not that I did a huge amount of cons. I did about the same number of cons, but I also did a crap ton of signings, and not local signings. I was doing signings in the West Coast and, you know, in the South and up in Boston, all of which are substantial trips for me. And uh, it ended up, by the time New York was my last con of the year, I had done all that. I had gone to Italy for a vacation, which was awesome. But by the time New York Comic Con was over, I was done. And I <laughs> did not get nearly as much work done as I would have if I hadn't done all that. Right, so, right. yeah, because I can't work at conventions. Um, and it's difficult when traveling to get stuff done, too. Right. Um, so, yeah, this year I had to modulate that. Like, one one thing a month is usually what I try to do. April was not going to be that way, but mostly I try to yeah. contain well, it. Well, it's, it's very difficult even for, you know, us journalists to be like, you know, we have to go here, here, and here. And then it just... Before you know it, you're spending a whole month, you know, on your only home one weekend, and it's, you know, it is can be very disruptive. But this is a very pleasant time here at MGA Con. Actually. It is. I have to say, I've had a thoroughly enjoyable yeah. time here. I, I got, I got no complaints. I mean, it would be nice to make money, but it's one of those kind of yeah. deals. Yeah. And you know what? Like, I think it's uh, sometimes you have to just build. Yeah. Have to build on something. So. Well, it's a first year con, and first year cons are rough. This one has an unusually good lineup of creators for yeah, a first year con. Exactly, exactly. So, as we like to say, there's more to come. But, uh, uh, Justin, thank you so much for your time. No and, problem. Uh, Thanks look, for talking to me. And uh, look for the new Luther Strode a miniseries coming out this summer. Hi, welcome to More to Come, PW Comics World's weekly podcast. Uh, this is Heidi McDonald. Again, I am here continuing my coverage at MGA Con. Uh, now I'm with Rico Renzi, who is a man, a renaissance man, really. Uh, not only is he an in-demand colorist working on some incredibly cool books, uh, but he's also, uh, what is your exact title for Heroes Con? Uh, I am the creative director at Heroes Con. <laughs> the creative director at Heroes Con, which is one of the most loved shows on the circuit. If my, um, Well, I, I've been asking people what their favorite shows are, and Heroes Con almost always comes up in the conversation for those who have been. 
Um, but yeah, so Rika, let's talk a little bit about the coloring because that's what you've been doing longest, right? How long how long have you been a comic book colorist? Uh, I probably started in 2000. Right. So, so. I, I'm not new, but I am getting a lot more eyes on my stuff lately for yeah. some reason. Yeah. Well, you just uh, on your table right now is um, FBP, the uh, Federal Bureau of Physics uh, book comes out from uh, from uh, Vertigo, and the cover is uh, been used as their. Uh, advertising image and actually for you Publishers Weekly subscribers or buyers you will be familiar with it because it was a cover on Publishers Weekly actually that Rico that that was awesome yeah so and it's very stylized though like uh, on this I mean how do you I mean I know this is one of those hopelessly broad questions but I mean you know when you're sitting down with a book do you talk about a color scheme do you talk about an approach to it I mean how do you you well, differentiate with the coloring. When we started uh, doing Collider, which is now FBP, um, Robbie, the guy who was drawing it, said he didn't want any earth tones in the book. He said, <laughs> and I said, well, I'm your guy because, you know, I want lime green and pink and just neon uh, stuff. You know, we, we thought it would be cool to kind of do it like uh, Akira, you know, just mm-hmm. just make everything blazing bright. <laughs> and not not natural, right? You know? Right, right. So, just try to make it different, right? Now, do you talk to an artist like that most of the time? Where you you yeah. sit and you talk about a color scheme? Or yeah, a... I try. I try not to take jobs where I'm like a cog. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I would rather you know make make it organic. But it seems now that colorists are becoming kind of superstars in their own right. They're becoming much more known in there. Well, you are laughing, <laughs> so maybe I'm overstating it. But I do find that a lot of colorists have. Um, you know, following. I mean, Jordy Blair has Jordan, really gotten well Jordan, known. Yeah, Jordan and, is doing a lot of books, and and she talks a lot online, mm-hmm. and you know, she's she has opinions about stuff, and mm-hmm. you know, they're usually good opinions, I think. And uh, it's she's a good representative for us. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and and plus she does she does uh, good work. But I mean, do you think? Um, you know, I mean, the colorists are kind of being known more as the cinematographers, I guess, just because. And there's been a lot more, to me, very intelligent talk about how specific coloring techniques can change the look of a book. Yeah. I mean, is that, and it's kind of hard, like, to talk about, I think, a lot of times. Um, I mean, do you find editors are able to convey what they're looking for in coloring? or he, Not, not all the time. He's not, shaking his head with a not, really not, resigned look. Not all the time. I mean, I've had, I've had a great time at Vertigo with Mark Doyle, and um, you know, he, I think the Bat books are going to get a lot better now since he just moved over there to them. But uh, I, I would say most editors don't, don't really understand the coloring aspect of it. You know, they like what they like, and right. they can't be objective about it mm-hmm. um, but I don't know <laughs> yeah well I, I I will put myself in among those and uh, in, in, again in my editing days uh, I would it was very difficult to articulate what you were looking for well, and I think Hi- Heidi you hired me uh, to color Toby <laughs> Cypress many years ago in a story for the Nightmare Factory and that was like one of the funnest jobs ever because Toby you, is awesome <laughs> you know actually I was talking about that this morning with Colleen Doran who also did a story in that book and uh, they actually you know now okay self-serving Heidi moment here for my podcast uh, but the books were based on the work of the horror writer Thomas Ligotti who's kind of been in the news a little bit because the true detective guy has mentioned uh, that he's influenced by his writing and uh, I was thinking about those books again and you know what we did have the most blast and they looked yeah. so great yeah. you did such an incredible job on that story by Toby <laughs> and everybody like did a stellar job on that book so um, and yeah, you could probably find them 
uh, in the maybe secondhand or online. Um, so uh, they're they're worth checking out, she said. <laughs> um, but uh, but but that said, I mean, for Toby's look was very stylized, mm-hmm. and you and I did, and he actually said, you know, Rico would be good. I mean, he asked for you by yeah. name, which was to me like. You know, asking. I always ask the artist now because I have no yeah, idea who I, I might think be a that's good. good. I think yeah. that's good. Um, now you also are working. Another book that's on here is uh, Dogs of War, uh, which is a really wonderful um, kids. Well, you know, young young readers book about um, you know the use of of, of dogs in um, you know conflicts and it's like snowy scenes and all that. So are those snowy scenes hard to color? Oh have? no. Yeah, snowy no, no scenes are my favorite, right? <laughs> well, how did you approach, say, coloring Nathan? I mean, was there any specific approach you had to that? Um, I've worked with Nathan, you know, several times in the past, and uh, we have a similar color sense. Um, we did dial it back a little bit for this because this is a more of a heavy story, kind of more realistic. So we didn't make it all neon like our normal work. But uh, yeah, is there any colorists who's or artists who's whose work you really admire that you look at when you say uh, Mark Chiarello is like my my god. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, he gave me my first job in comics. He was the guy I, I looked up to. So. Yeah, Mark's the best. <laughs> yeah, well, he absolutely is probably the editor who's done the most to advance color, um, certainly at DC. Yeah. And he really, aside for his love of green, just in case you're listening, Mark, uh, an old joke <laughs> that we'll go back. But uh, yeah, he's really been very smart about it. And I mean, I myself am trying to. I mean, I, on on my other website, The Beat, we've been running some interviews with colorists where they've been talking a lot about it. And I, I have noticed more yeah. kind of educational materials about it. So I've noticed a, a, a kind of a movement to, for <laughs> colorists to be mentioned in criticism, <laughs> and you know, a lot of criticism for a while there was just talking about the writer mm-hmm. and almost recapping the story, not talking right. about who drew it or why they've made these choices or you know the color or anything so I, I've noticed an improvement on that right. good good now the book you have coming up is um, uh, Southern I'm forgetting the title Southern the New, Bastards Southern Bastards which is written by Jason Aaron drawn by Jason Latour right so it's the Jason uh, Jason Latour oh my god he is such a great artist also yeah um, and he, he's mainly doing the, the heavy lifting on the color. Um, I'm just kind of backing him up on that, uh, helping him out, picking some palettes, and mm-hmm. right. so we're, we're kind of teaming up on right. that. So is there any look that you're going for on that book? or a- um, Gritty. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to be a dark book. Yeah, okay. Well, eagerly awaited. I mean, the concept behind it, the team, is so stellar, so um, yeah. definitely one we're looking for. Now, Rico, so knowledgeable about what we were just talking about, and yet, now you're running this convention. Uh, yeah, so how do you, on earth, do you balance these two things? Uh, I just, uh, it, there's a lot of overlap. I mean, since I've worked in the industry for a while, I know tons of you know creators, and that's one of my jobs at uh, Heroes Con is, is booking the guests and you know just having a relationship with people really helps out in that situation because you know it spreads like a, a, a tree like. This person talks to this person and so right. on. And, and Shelton's had a great show for you know 30 years before I was even there. So, I mean, it's it's really a, a nice family show. Like, everybody feels really comfortable there. Right. Not, not a lot of publisher or editorial presence. Right. It's, it's an art show. Now, do you find, though, like, you've been doing it for three years now, right? 
Yeah, this will be my fourth one this year. Right, right. So, um, but I mean, convention culture has just grown and grown in yeah. that over that period. It's really exploded. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, we're here at a first time con, and, and you know, it's had growing pains, but um, you know, I think there's generally a pretty good feeling here. Um, but I mean, do you find with more attention being paid? I mean, have you noticed in the time that 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 you've been working on Heroes Con that you know you get more media attention or more? You know, the stage is bigger in any way? Um, what I've noticed is a lot more people want to do the show, like come to it. Like I get emails from agents all the time, and they'll usually be, you know, like I was a Power Ranger. I'll get a, li- I'll get a list of, of, you know, I saw a list of talent the other day that an agent represented, and Mindy Cohn was on there. I was like, oh, Matt Natalie from Facts of Life wants to come to Heroes Con. That's, that's amazing, but, but we don't really do that. Uh, it's mostly just comics. You know, we try to keep it strictly comics. Um, if a person is a celebrity that you know had a hand in making a comic, you know, we'd be more than happy to have them. Like Brian Posehn. Love to see you at the show. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah, I remember Rosaria Dawson was down yeah, there yeah. one time um, mm-hmm. with some of the uh, folks who are here at 12 Gauge, and right. she was awesome. She was delightful. Yeah, she is way into comics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so she, she, she got a lot out of it, too. Um, are there any, uh, I know this is also a hopelessly broad question, but, um, I mean, are there any pieces of advice that you would give uh, to potential? I mean, a lot of people seem to be jumping into conventions they Convention? seem to think they could do it in their, yeah. their spare time well, quite work I, out that. I think uh, um, a convention in a in a city that has uh, you know comic shops to back it up is is pretty easy thing to put on if you keep it simple um, invite some good guests get a bunch of dealers um, but I think I think the thing now for a convention to do is to differentiate itself by mm-hmm. having uh, an angle you know not not being uh, a game, celebrity, comic, you know, just not throwing everything together, right. actually having a focus. Like, oh, okay. Like this Portland show, the uh, I think it's NW Line Work mm-hmm. um, that's coming up. You know, they seem to have a focus. Like, they seem to know exactly what they want to do. And right. I think that's what sets Heroes apart is, you know, being a, an artist, you know, a creator show, a comic show. It's right, right. Just not, not throwing everything together. And then you get a national uh, reputation. I believe the Line Work show is pretty indie-focused yeah, as well. I yeah. mean, it's definitely not Marvel DC. Right. Even though there's so many people. Um, oh, there we go. You know, we can stop if you need to make a purchase here. Uh, Kate, just edit this out. Um... <laughs> So, um, yeah, is there anything special? Here, I'll wait and tell you. Is there anything special for this year's Heroes Con that we should know about? or uh, Uh, We got got Asad Ribic and uh, Raphael Albuquerque coming from faraway places. I'm I'm always excited. And, uh, you know, I always have, you know, a few favorites that have never been to the show. Like, I'm excited about Kevin Anka coming out and uh, Jake Wyatt and Kevin Wada. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like the... The up-and-coming artist is kind of my thing. So. Yeah, and it's a great place, again, like, it's a wonderful place to just meet people, hang out, and yeah. it is so friendly. And uh, <laughs> Great hangout at the Westin every night. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a many times Heroes kind of attendee, I, I must co-sign on, on all that. It is much loved, and it's a good time, so... Um, well, Rico, thank you so much for your time and, you know, your precious time. <laughs> and, um, you know, we'll see you and, uh, you know, in the funny pages and uh, on the cod floor. So. Thank you, Heidi. Hi, this is Heidi McDonald of More to Come, PW Comics World's weekly podcast. And I am here at MGA Con in Macon, Georgia with Brian Stelfreeze. 
uh, the legendary artist. Legendary. Legendary Brian Stelvries. And now... Which uh, simply means I'm old. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, comics are a great industry for hanging around long enough and you do become a, a legend. So. <laughs> yes. Uh, and now currently you're working on Day Men for Boom Studios, but uh, you've worked on a lot of things in the past, and you uh, you give us a couple of, of titles or, you know, books or some of your favorite projects of the past. Um, well, uh, I've done, um, well, I started off by doing about uh, 50 covers for, uh, for Shadow of the Bat. Uh, in fact, um, I spent the uh, early part of my career as uh, exclusively a cover guy, and um, and it's only been uh, the last uh, probably 10 years that I've seriously gotten into doing uh, interior stuff. And, uh, and really, I think that's kind of where the fun of comics is. You mm-hmm. know? I think uh, when I was doing covers, I, I enjoyed it, but uh, but now I'm kind of in love with it now that I'm doing interior stuff. Really? Yeah. So did you have to develop a storytelling style? Or, I mean, how did you... Because it's, it's, you know, it's different to tell an image with a cover. A great cover image, of course, tells a story yeah. in one image, but... With the breakdown of it. Well, uh, the thing about it is, is uh, I I did have to develop a, a style for it, but uh, but I think primarily I did uh, I did almost exclusively covers just out of laziness. Uh, <laughs> that, that actually requires a lot more work to do uh, interior stuff, and uh, and I just uh, don't think I was willing to put in the amount of work that that requires. Mm-hmm. But uh, but now now I'm doing it, and I'm actually really enjoying it. Right. So what is the uh, origin of, of Dayman? It's it's actually written by uh, isn't it written by Matt? Yeah, Matt. That, uh, who's the editor in chief at Boom? Yeah, right? yeah. Matt uh, Matt Gagnon and um, and um, Michael Allen Nelson are the uh, right. are the writers. And uh, and actually, um, the cool thing is is. Um, the, uh, the Dayman project started off as just an idea that Matt uh, had that he thought would make a, a cool comic book, but, uh, but he was the editor-in-chief, so uh, they got uh, one of the other guys to sort of shepherd it as an editor and treated Matt just like everyone else there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what was cool was uh, they approached me uh, about doing it uh, because um, um, Philip Sablik, mm-hmm. the uh, editor uh, at Top Cow, I worked with him when I did uh, Hardcore. With, oh, right. um, yeah, with uh, with Robert Kirkman, and we had a great working relationship. And then he eventually got hooked up with Boom. And when Matt pitched him the idea, he said, "You know, who would be great on this?" <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's kind of how it all uh, sort of rolled out. Right. So, uh, but I mean, do you find uh, like working? I mean, obviously, well, Robert Kirkman—that was an image book, right? Yeah. That was yeah. a. I mean, how well, do you that like? Was a, that was a Top Cow book. Oh, was it? That's yeah. right. That's right. Top Cow. Well, that was technically image, actually, technically, but uh, yeah. yes. but uh, <laughs> yeah, still, still but image. somehow some not always is remembered as part of uh, image. So I'm going to wait till this this long announcement ends. Yes. Long. Yeah. Arduous announcement. King Con Rebel. Man, you're competing with like long announcements and thunder. I know the thunder. Okay. I think he's done. Okay. Um, yeah. So I mean, how do you? How do you like? Uh, I mean, there was a you created a little bit of a there was you got some nice publicity out of going to Boom just because they were talking about you know kind of having a new new working model and really being more creator friendly and everything. I mean, 
you know, it's, it's there's so many different models now for creators, and yet uh, sometimes it's hard to find, you know, to make money at it. I mean, yeah. obviously, as a legend like yourself, but uh, you know, you'd like to think that. But I mean, is it hard to find projects, or is it? Um, it's a. Uh, it's actually not hard to find projects. Uh, I think it's hard to find uh, good projects. I think it's it's hard to find stuff that's uh, that's really uh, interesting. I think a lot of a lot of the, the reason why I was in love with doing comics um, was because, you know, I was a fan of certain comics. My buddies were a fan of other comics. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I think the comics model has changed. Um, the comics model has become, um, there are no comic books anymore. Right. There are companies. That, uh, <laughs> like, like every, every company is doing one, in, you know, the entire company is dedicated to one story. Right, and, that's uh, true. Yeah, and uh, and I'm not personally a fan of that. You know, uh, it's it's like I, I liked Spider Man when Spider Man was Spider Man and the Hulk was a Hulk, and they didn't cross over that much. So um, so because of just the way comics is being done now, it's kind of a little bit harder for me to get into superhero comics. So uh, so it was really cool to you know right. get something different, you know, right. get something a little bit a little bit uh, more kind of broad-minded right right no there's been some talk recently actually about how uh well i mean i guess you could call it big two culture with marvel and dc how over the last like decade or so they've kind of tried to lessen the role of the artist have you yeah, yeah. And, have you aware of this phenomenon or um, well, i've definitely been uh, been aware of the uh, the phenomenon and uh, and if you're if you're an artist you you can't help but uh but feel that uh, mm-hmm. there's um you know the writers are getting uh, top billing, and oftentimes uh, the artists are forgotten. Even when uh, when movies end up graduating into um, TV and uh, and oftentimes uh, film, mm-hmm. the writers, uh, the artists, who's literally responsible for the look of the project, um, kind of get sidelined. And uh, and with Marvel and and with DC, a lot of times they uh, they will go off and do their like story conference mm-hmm. and. The artists aren't involved. They're right. not even invited a lot of times. It's, it's writers going <laughs> off and doing stuff, and uh, and I think I think the writers do a lot of the work in comics, but um, but the artists are there also. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're kind of responsible for the look of the things, right? And, uh, right, right. And I think uh, a lot of times that's kind of uh, kind of ignored. Right, right. But but at the same time, it's also like it seems. Like if you look at Tumblr or anywhere, it's like even at Image, there's so many new kinds of artists coming in there. And at Boom, yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously with Adventure Time, I mean, it seems like the styles everywhere have kind of opened up quite a bit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and I think um, oddly enough, I think something that's uh, that's changing the face of comics is uh, is girls, mm-hmm. girls getting into into comics. Um, they're they're having a tendency of demanding different things. Um, demanding much more subtle um, characterizations, much more subtle storytelling. I think uh, a lot of girls are used to man- manga uh, mm-hmm. art, which has like much more developed characters right. than we do as American. Uh, like American comics, for the longest time, was boy comics because it was all action. It was all bang, zoom, kinetic, uh, but not characters interacting right. with each That's other. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think um, with uh, with a lot of girls getting into uh, creating comics and getting into reading comics, that's sort of uh, changing the face of things, and uh, and you know also bringing a lot of really interesting art. I mean, yeah. I think um, folks like um, Fiona Staples. Oh yeah, really. Yeah. You know, 
I mean, we have to pay attention to it. Right, stuff. right, right. Um, would you, uh, I mean, do you have any advice for people who want to aspire to become comics artists? Any good advice? Well, um, my, the best advice that I could give to someone who's interested in becoming a comic book artist is to try not to become a comic book artist, <laughs> but to try to become a comic book storyteller. Yes. Uh, and there's, there's a huge difference between being an artist and a, and a storyteller. And I think the people that are really doing well in comics now are the people who use their art as a vehicle to tell stories mm-hmm. and not use their art as art in and of itself. Right. Um, I mean, Double page spreads. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah try, <laughs> trying, not to, trying not to think in terms of, oh, every panel that I do must hang in a gallery. Right. But really try to move your reader. Mm-hmm. You know, try to move them through the story and try to really get them interested in the characters as actors right. rather than as the characters as, you know, characters right 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 i i will throw in here as we're talking um brian is sketching this beautiful sketch and <laughs> he's talking and sketching and uh you know everything um what do you think of conventions like there's so many now and i were there at a first time con and um i mean you're you're local to here right you are yeah i'm uh i'm in uh from atlanta mm-hmm. and um so i'm about like maybe Almost two hours uh, yeah. away from here, so, but, uh, but I'm, I'm fairly local. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, do you get invited to a lot of shows? Do you have to be very selective, or do you... Yeah, I, uh, I try to, because, you know, mainly what I do is draw comics, uh-huh. so um, so it's just like I try to I try to take on, like, no more than one uh, convention um, per month, uh-huh. uh, and, uh, and yeah, I try to be very discerning about uh, yeah. about which cons that I'm, that I'm going to, and... Uh, and I'm kind of on the reverse end of things in that I don't like doing a lot of big shows. Right. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I don't do San Diego on a regular basis. And I don't do New York on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, because those shows are so big that you don't actually get a chance to talk to right. people that are attending. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's true. Unless you have some overwhelming reason to be there, it can be very... Uh, very uh, stressful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I, I do find, like, I mean, is a convention really disruptive to your schedule, to your working schedule? Or? Oh, the convention, <laughs> the convention really knocks a hole in your schedule. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, even under the best case scenario, uh, a convention is really going to mm-hmm. just a- attack your schedule. So it's, um, so it's yeah. like you really have to kind of be very discerning about how much time you're going to spend. Uh, at the uh, at the shows, but the um, but the thing about it is, you got to watch out for shows because they're really they're addictive. Because mm-hmm. as as an artist going to a show, it's like you're there, you're okay. actually making like you know money, and you know you're getting accolades and all that stuff. It's like everything that an artist wants is right there at a convention. So you have to be sort of real selective about making sure you do shows but you know that you actually do some books right so that you deserve to be at the show right 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 so well uh certainly uh you know some great stuff being drawn here and uh (laughs) at this very table but uh brian thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us and as we like to say there's more to come (laughs) well thank you thank you very much i've always wanted to hang out with you oh well there you go so there